Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Spectator's Podcast. I'm Kate Andrews, The Spectator's Economics Editor, and I'll be hosting today's discussion about the future of nuclear energy in the UK and the stigmas around it. As the UK faces a rising energy crisis with gas supplies in short supply, people are asking not just how we mitigate the problem in the short term, but how we hedge against it in the long term. What role might nuclear energy play? What's slowing down its development? Is it the technology, the funding, or public attitude towards nuclear energy? Can hearts and minds be swayed in its favor? To discuss all this and more, I'm joined today by Mark Jenkinson, MP, Vice Chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Nuclear Energy, and formerly a self-employed contractor in the nuclear supply chain. Wade Allison is Emeritus Professor of Physics at the University of Oxford, and Julia Pike is the Nuclear Development Director at EDF, and this podcast is kindly sponsored by EDF. Wade, can you start by telling us the extent to which nuclear stigma or ignorance exists, either in this country or others? Is it a real problem or is it overstated? I think it's the problem. In fact, I think it's the only problem because nuclear is so straightforward. The problem is that people don't accept it. It's the equivalent in the virus thing of the anti-vaxxers, people don't trust it. And that's what we've got to get over. Mark, you used to work in the nuclear industry before you went into politics. Do you hear concerns amongst your constituents about nuclear energy? Uh, Not from my own constituents, but I certainly recognise those concerns in other parts of the country. I come from a community that has really high nuclear acceptance, uh, as do the constituencies around them. But I do certainly see that elsewhere across the country. We tend to hear a lot about how dangerous nuclear is when it goes wrong, how the waste is a problem that we don't know how to deal with, and all sorts of these fallacies. Julia, surely some of the concerns out there are rational or fact-based. Clearly there's a difference between voicing your concern about how we dispose of nuclear waste, for example, compared to, say, promoting a conspiracy theory around radiation. I think that when people look at facts, they need to really focus on what are fossil fuels doing to us today and what have they actually done to the planet. I think there was an article in The Economist about a year ago which said that if you'd built out nuclear as had been planned in the 80s, we actually wouldn't have climate change that we have today. So I think there's a proportionality issue. I mean, of course, it's not the same thing to want to know that waste is safely stored. But in fact, it is safely stored. The UK has an excellent track record of safety and nuclear waste, I think, is not known to have ever harmed a single individual, whereas climate change and fossil fuels separately are killing millions of people, both through changes to where people live and the weather patterns and also through air pollution. And yet almost 60% of the public still cite nuclear disposal as a source of their concerns. We do really regular polling, and the polling tends to show that around a third of the population's um, in favour of nuclear, around a third's against, and around a third's quite neutral. And as Mark said, the closer you go to the places where nuclear is actually generated, the more you find that people like it. It's a great employer. It sits on a really small plot. People can see that it looks after its sites very beautifully. Dungeness, I think, sits on a triple SI. Sizewell sits in an area of outstanding natural beauty, and the station's actually enable us to have net zero with room for nature. Wade, where do these fears come from? Can you give us a quick history of why nuclear has become so unpopular? Is it all rooted in Chernobyl and Fukushima, or are there other factors at play? The problem has been going on for 80 years. 
never since World War II have the public and the community at large been told about nuclear science. And now what we see is a confusion between natural science, which is the world as we find it, nothing to do with us, if you like it, except we found out about it, and technology. And technology is often very exciting, it goes wrong, and there are thrills and spills, and it requires money and all that sort of thing. The problem with nuclear energy, or the questions for nuclear energy, are science questions which show that there isn't a problem in the first place. And one of the reasons there isn't a problem in the first place is that we evolved hundreds and millions of years ago, and in fact, all life evolved to live on this planet. And if we had been seriously affected by radiation, as was much higher in the past, we wouldn't be here. This kind of thing can be taught to 10 and 11 and 12-year-olds, but unfortunately, even their teachers don't understand this. So I see the problem of nuclear as being an educational problem, not a problem about technology, but about jolly, simple science of the world we live in. We'll come back to that education point in a bit. But first, Mark, Wade mentioned there that science is a, a process of success and failure over and over and over again. The problem when it comes to nuclear energy is that, as far as people are concerned, failure isn't an option. If something goes wrong, it goes spectacularly wrong. And so a lot of people want to avoid it in the first place. So how do you get around that problem when it comes to winning over hearts and minds? Yeah, well, so that's the problem that we've created ourselves. For decades, we've been told that nuclear is a problem, but it's a problem we can control. And then we see something like Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, and people realise that maybe we can't control elements of it, although Fukushima, the aftermath there is actually the cleanup and the scale of the cleanup required is overinflated by the Japanese government to appease the public. You know, they're, they're ruining very good topsoil just because the public think that's what needs to happen when in actual fact the science says it doesn't. And in the nuclear industry, we talk about safety so much that we give the impression that it is a problem. Now, obviously, being safe is not something that we shouldn't do, but we make it out to be something that it isn't to people on the outside, people who maybe don't understand the science behind it. So we've got a big communication issue. And how we turn that juggernaut around, I don't really have the answer, but we start by having these discussions around how 7 million people a year are dying from air pollution across the world, how nuclear is the most environmentally friendly, safest form of low-carbon energy that we have, etc. Well, Mark, let's tease out what we can. Does government or do politicians in general talk enough about nuclear? I feel like in so much of these net zero conversations, so far anyway, this form of energy has been relatively brushed under the carpet. When we do talk about it, all we see is headlines about being forced to have new boilers or heat pumps. We don't deal with the fundamental issue of needing hundreds of gigawatts of energy replacement, whether that's a move into electricity and therefore requiring a significant increase in our electricity uh, generation capacity or 
And whatever that looks like, the only time we communicate really is when it's something that looks like it will negatively impact my constituents. That's the only time it makes the newspapers. It's the only time politicians, the majority of politicians, talk about it. Um, and I try and talk about nuclear and the other issues that we need to address to get us to net zero uh, quite regularly, but again, not everyone does. Wade, some even in the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens are against nuclear power. You think that these politicians would be taking the lead on it? They don't understand what it is, what they're talking about. Uh, one of the problems is that when somebody thinks they understand something and have formed an opinion, it's extremely difficult to unteach them. I mean, as a university lecturer, I, I know that the most difficult kind of things to teach are things that people think they already know. And people think they already know that nuclear is dangerous, when in fact, it's not true. And of course, the science of all these things is something that we do know. We know a lot about the science of energy. We don't always know about the technology of the materials that you need to build a nuclear power station and how long they will go before they corrode or have to be replaced. That kind of technology is the kind of thing that does have to be de developed. But the basic science of what we're doing is something we, we know all about, and the Greens are uh, playing politics. So then, Julia, how do you envision nuclear power helping to reduce carbon emissions? How important is nuclear in getting to net zero, according to estimates from those like the Climate Change Committee? So if you look at the weather that we've had for the last few months, and we've seen there have been very low wind speeds, and you've seen that the UK has been burning an awful lot of gas, and that the gas price is spiking. And what that's going to mean practically is that people have some really, really expensive bills that will push some people into fuel poverty. And if we go back to Fukushima, I think a lot of people died in Japan as a result of fuel poverty, following the shutdown of what was actually quite a significant part of the Japanese electricity industry. So I see the job of nuclear in the UK, and you know, electricity provision is quite country-specific. It depends what natural resources you have. You know, if you are somewhere which is extremely sunny, solar can do a lot of the job for you. If you are somewhere which has natural hydro resources, hydro can do a lot of the job for you. So it just depends where you are. But where we are in the UK, we have, I think, what people call great wind resources, we are uh, surrounded by the opportunity to put offshore wind farms to work, and that's great. But as we've seen, when you have low wind speeds, it's not so great, and you need electricity, and you need to be not burning gas. So we see nuclear as playing a supporting role. We see having around about 20%-ish of the energy mix coming from nuclear is quite a desirable outcome. There are plenty of independent studies which support that sort of proportion of nuclear in the system, and then... Really, although people like to argue about how much do you need, the answer to how much do you need will really emerge over time. You know, if we don't get significant diminution in storage costs and we don't find ways of building storage which can actually last for months rather than days, and we don't find ways which are sort of less demanding of precious earth resources, then maybe we'll need more nuclear. If we do get great technological advancements, which means that we can rely far more on wind and storage, then we'll need less nuclear. What we do know is we need some nuclear and we need to get on with building it as soon as possible to maintain the skills of the UK nuclear industry. 
Now, the UK was a leader in nuclear, and it would be absolutely tragic if at this point we actually lose those skills. We need to build nuclear now. Wade, what do you estimate is the right balance to be struck between competing forms of alternative energy? I think people are under an illusion that if we get to net zero by 2050, that that draws a line under this problem. In fact, atmospheric pollution has timescales of 100 years and more. We have to realise that climate change is going to go on for a hundred, if not hundreds of years or even longer. And what we've got to work out is how we can live under those conditions. Now, that's not just a matter of getting hotter or colder or, or wetter. It's also a matter of coping with extremes weather conditions from time to time. Now, one of the problems, therefore, is resilience. Can a power station survive an extreme weather conditions like we have seen, for instance, in the United States? Can hydro survive simply not having any rainfall for years and years, as we see happening in California? Now, the point about nuclear is that on at a nuclear power station, the fuel that is already in the nuclear power in the uh, core will last for a year and more. And in a shed, you can easily have fuel for several more years. It is a tiny footprint, even than a coal-fired power station. And, and gas has to be piped in. And that fails, as has happened in the United States. Or a coal-fired power station needs very large numbers of trains every day. So... The question of resilience is not nearly, I think, enough in the public domain. People are going to see that it's the resilience of our power supplies, not just their reliability, but the fact that they're there and they will work under all weather conditions. So I think that in 200 years' time, I don't agree with Julia's figure of 20%. I think we're going to be 85 and 90% nuclear. But that's, we've got a long way to go uh, to develop the nuclear power stations. Julia, your response? Well, I think Wade and I would probably agree that the amount of nuclear we need will become apparent and will depend on how other technologies develop and what really happens with climate change. But I think what we can agree is it's a great low-carbon safe job-providing industry. And so rather than sort of seeking to minimise its role, we should actually regard it as what it is, which is a really great career and, you know, we should have more of it. Mark, it's not just about the science, though. There are political implications as well. Much of new nuclear investment depends on Chinese help, like at Hinkley Point. Do you think the government is reluctant to draw attention to nuclear energy because of the awkward geopolitics? I think there probably is an element of, of geopolitics, particularly given the current political situation. I think we're just reluctant to talk about cost, and that is because currently we, we talk about the cost of a nuclear plant over, what, 30, 35 years, when we know for a fact that they'll run for 60, 80. Everything's replaceable, possibly into three figures. 
but we're just not allowed on our uh, balance sheet to look at the cost. So we talk about paying for this over 35 years and then the energy is you know, almost free. But if we were just allowed to amortise the cost over a longer period, for example, we'd see just how cheap nuclear energy is. And then it becomes politically acceptable. Once people start to feel the uh, benefit in their pocket, that's when it becomes politically acceptable. When they can see the benefit on the horizon, that's when it becomes politically acceptable. Can I add to that? I'd, I'd say that the narrative around energy costs in the UK has just gone a bit wrong. So people constantly read about the costs of renewables falling and yet they don't see their electricity bills falling. Why could this be? So we're pretty confident that the UK built around 20 gigawatts of nuclear, then the system costs, the cost of the whole electricity system to consumers would go down by between four and a half and five billion pounds. That's between 150 and 200 pounds a year for every consumer bill. And the reason for that is because although people talk about CFT strike prices, etc., what they don't talk about is what actually makes up the whole of the bill, which is what do you do when the wind's not blowing, balancing the system? What do you do to get the electricity from where you're making the electricity to where you want to use the electricity? That's transmission and distribution. And somehow the narrative about electricity bills is just not well understood. And that's why counterintuitively, even though nuclear does have high capital costs followed by low operating costs, it actually brings the cost of bills down. But Julia, is it possible to get to a place where bills would fall? Indeed, is it possible to have nuclear energy in the UK at all without the existence of Chinese funding? Uh, yes, of course it is. The government is, we very much hope, going to introduce a regulated asset-based model specifically in order to enable the providers of low-cost capital like UK pension funds to invest in nuclear. And this is what really needs to happen. We need to rescue nuclear from geopolitics and allow it to be built as the great energy source it is funded by financial investors. So you're fairly confident that if Chinese funding were to be removed completely, projects like Hinkley Point could still go ahead? Well, I'm not here to talk about Hinkley Point and the specifics of the deal between EDF and CGN on Hinkley, but in relation to Sizewell, for which we hope the regulated asset base model will be used, that's a completely different issue inside the regulated asset base model than just as for water assets, transmission assets, airports, we would expect to attract financial investors and for nuclear to become depoliticised in that way. Wade, is there a generational factor here? Though younger people tend to be more passionate about tackling climate change, they're also the most sceptical about nuclear. Three quarters of young adults don't understand that it's a low-carbon source of energy, according to research commissioned by the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. Students understand this sort of thing very well indeed, and they are the most receptive. It's people of my generation who are extremely difficult to, to get to change their minds. And as far as costs are concerned, I think society has got to do a lot more heavy thinking about costs. We seem to expect students to pay for their own education, an investment in education or in long-range energy supplies is just the sort of thing that the state should be doing in the general interest. And I think that applies to student fees and so on. The lifetime of a working student is again about 50, 60, 70 years. The financiers want their money more quickly, and I think that is wrong. So I don't think that's anything to do with nuclear as such. The communities that are familiar with nuclear are much more receptive to more nuclear. 
And if, as I hope will happen in the next 30 years, small modular reactors are built so that each community, I mean like sizable uh, small cities, will have their own nuclear power station and everybody in that community will know that is where our electricity comes from. Sometimes we make a bit extra and we put it on the grid and we export it to the people in the next door county. But I know the people who work there, my uncle works there, my children go on school outings to the nuclear power station. This kind of social acceptance, which will make a more cohesive uh, response to nuclear power, I think having huge stations remotely is not good for the social acceptance. What people want is to know feeling of security of their supplies as close to them as possible. And this is over and above any technical reason for making small modular reactors. Well, Julia, what do you make about those points about education and also integrating nuclear into the community? Um, do you think more needs to be done in schools to address nuclear as an alternative energy source? And could it be seen that bringing back jobs to industrial heartlands might get local communities on side with nuclear as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that you know, the more everybody understands about where their electricity comes from, what it is that's low carbon, what it is that makes up their electricity bill, what will put it up, what will put it down. I think all of those things need to be talked about much more. I think the media has a role to play in helping people understand better and sort of promote a few more facts. And I think that in terms of jobs and industrial communities, absolutely. I mean, people have said on this podcast, the communities around nuclear power stations like the nuclear power stations because they're good employers, etc., and so, yes, absolutely, the more nuclear power stations you had, the more communities would have the experience of working in a nuclear power station, and that is seen as a positive. Mark, your government loves the phrase levelling up. It seems to be able to apply it to just about everything. Will nuclear be included in that? Well, I would certainly like to think so. It now has its own department, of course, so we shall continue to push nuclear as a, as a way of levelling up communities like mine, whether it's gigawatt stations, whether it's small modular reactors, whether it's some of the advanced modular reactors, uh, some of the newer technologies that we will see in the future. And of course, I mean, we, we talk about nuclear safety. This country built a fleet of reactors in the AGRs that were much safer than anything anyone was building in America, for example. Sizewell B was built with much greater passive safety than anything that was being built in America at the time. The reactors that we're, we're talking about, you know, potentially putting in the UK now, have much, much greater passive safety features, and reactors of the future will probably be inherently safe, or as inherently safe as we can get. So I'm still not convinced that we're going to put small modular reactors on the, on the edge of Birmingham or Manchester or... Preston, but I mean, the, the day that we have that oh, level of community... Well, the, the day that we have that level of community acceptance, then we've won the argument, haven't we? Putting it the other way around, I think we'll get the community acceptance by putting the small modular reactors in. If they're built, they're, fact, they're factory built and assembled relatively quickly and the regulations match 
more to the kind of regulations that apply to other power stations, then I'm not quite sure what will prevent us from doing that. I think that could be a great vision of the future, but we mustn't lose sight of the fact that we need to get on with building. Today, we don't yes. have a UK-approved design for a small modular reactor. We need to get on with building the one thing we can build, which is a UK EPR. Otherwise, the industry is going to de-skill and we won't be able to build any nuclear. So I'm, I personally am in favour of all nuclear, but we really, really need to get on with the one form of nuclear that we can build today. Well, that brings me on to my last question, which I'd like to ask of each of you, which is the best thing we can do and should do immediately to be tackling climate change and how nuclear might relate to that. Mark, I'll start with you. And also, you might want to weave in the key chain that you've brought with with yourself today, which has been sitting on the table during our discussion, which you explained to me before the podcast started, and I am just absolutely fascinated by. Yeah, so this is a, a mock fuel pellet that's probably... Not quite 10 millimetres long, six or seven millimetres across uh, in really diameter. I just this, think it was a normal keychain. Uh, but two of those would power your entire household for a year. That pellet there would give me 20,000 miles in my electric vehicle. And I dread to think how many wind turbines we would have to build to, notwithstanding the, the reliability of those turbines and the fact that we're, you know, we see in Scotland, for example, I watch the grid carbon intensity beta online and you can see in Scotland when the wind stops blowing Scotland switches from North Scotland switches from 100% powered by wind to 85% powered by nuclear just just in a heartbeat I think we've got a long way to go on communication I think government getting the tone right and building another nuclear power station carbon budget six probably wants us to make three decisions and have them online by 2035 and that, that's alongside 15,000 acres of solar and 40 gigawatts of wind and, and everything else that we talk about. So going back to the, the conversation before about how much nuclear we'll need, future of decarbonation, decarbonisation lies in moving more to electricity than, than many of the other sources that are touted and therefore will require much greater generating capacity from nuclear. Wade, what do you think we should be doing immediately and how does that feed into changing hearts and minds when it comes to the safety of nuclear? Well, I think the first thing we should do is approve Sizewell C because we're going to need a variety of solutions. And as Julia says, in spite of what I, my vision of a hundred years' time, what we need is what we can do now. And I... The situation is rather the same as it was in 1900 when people realised that you didn't need somebody waving a red flag walking along in front of a car. Cars were coming, they were building them in France and Germany and we needed to get on the bandwagon and start to build them here. And with the collapse of the use of the red flag, there was a choice. You could either have the big steam engines, the traction engines of the 19th century, and they tended to frighten the horses and were not perhaps socially acceptable, but they did the job. And the Stanley Steamer cars of 1900 were a very good solution to the problem of mobility. But then, of course, came petrol engines and diesel engines. But could you, in 1900, even in retrospect, see Henry Ford amongst all the startups that there were? 
there are enormous variety of designs of small modular reactors. And as Julia says, none of them is ready to go. So it's rather like cars in 1900. But we will need two or three, because we shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket, otherwise it will be like we are with gas now. Well, we need several, and we need them to produce the secondary energy sources, like electricity and hydrogen and so on. There's too much talk as if hydrogen and electric cars were a solution to the problem. They are consuming units. They need primary energy to drive them, and that's either got to come from renewables, which are, are not reliable or resilient, or from fossil fuels, which are not acceptable, or from nuclear. So you're left with nuclear. Julia, last word to you. I think when we're looking at what we want as a country, we should think about how it is we're going to make life better for people. And if we think what do people want, they want energy security. We don't want to be dependent on or overly dependent on foreign countries for our energy. We want to think about how we use land. We want to have net zero with room for nature. We don't want to cover the whole of the land in a combination of energy creating materials and food. We want people to have great jobs and careers and we want to keep net zero affordable. And I think nuclear's got a good role to play in all of those, not on its own, but as part of a mix. And actually, although there's been quite a lot of talk about who supports it, who doesn't support it, government has started to talk about it a lot more. It is number three in the 10-point plan. We have seen increasing numbers of public statements in favour of nuclear, both from the Conservative and actually from the Labour Party. And I'm maybe counterculturally for the nuclear industry, actually really optimistic about the way forward. Mark, Julia, Wade, thanks for joining me.